1: Listen to the deal.
0: Listen to the deal on Spotify. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? Well, I'm doing great. I feel like I'm in the middle of a goddamn forest fire
1: here. I'm just surrounded by salacious fires in California, Utah, Montana, Colorado. And all of that smoke is settling right into Cody, Wyoming. So I woke up this morning feeling like I I was out in the middle of the woods in the middle of a forest fire. It was brutal. But uh, other than that, I'm doing great. It's a beautiful Sunday afternoon.
0: Well, I'm glad you're with us and uh, hopefully everybody is safe and everybody's doing okay. Uh, Man, there's just uh, a lot of weird stuff going on, but nothing weirder than when the macho man himself came. How
1: was
0: that? I think everybody has a Macho Man impression, do they
1: not? Oh, God, it is the easiest impression in the world to do. Anybody you... can do a Macho Man impression.
0: Why do you think that is? Why do you think he's um, the one everybody sort of gravitates to? Well,
1: I mean, it's an easy impression to do. Easy impression to do. All you got to do is growl. Right. Get your lips together, brother, and kind of growl of your voice, kind of drag out your vowels, you know. <laughs> it's just an easy one to do.
0: And man, let's sort of start at the beginning. You know, I mean, I got to tell you, I grew up a huge Macho Man fan. I first, I was introduced to his character at WrestleMania four. I saw the double tape VHS and I was a wrestling fan right after that. I was hooked in and ready to go. And he was sort of, uh, you know, I guess the number two star in all of wrestling Tell me about the first time you met Randy and what your perception of him was before you guys actually started working together.
1: My perception of Randy, um, I mean, clearly I put him, you know, in that the top category in WWF at that time. Uh, you, you know, you're him as number two. I think everybody looked at Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage, you know, interchangeably to a degree. Hulk, Hulk being kind of the icon of the hood ornament of WWF back in the 80s, early 90s. But Randy was right up there. Uh, I didn't, you know, before coming to to WCW. Truth be known, I didn't watch a lot of WWF content. I'm, I was certainly aware of them, and I did watch it occasionally. But I, because of, you know, my, I guess my age or or, or or the way I grew up as a wrestling fan, I was still kind of I favored, you know, the AWA. I favored my local promotion more than I did the WWF and in large part, because I was just more familiar with the local characters that I grew up watching in depth, AWA. So I didn't really gravitate, you know, when, when WWF was really making their move in the mid eighties and late eighties, I didn't like immediately jump on the WWF bandwagon. So truth be told, although I was really aware of Randy, you know, in, as a wrestling fan, even a peripheral one for WWF, um, you'd have to be blind not to have been, but I, you know, I didn't follow him closely. I just knew he was one of the big stars and I didn't think about him too much until, um, actually about a year before we hired him and Bob do who was my counterpart. You know, he wasn't my boss, but he and I both reported to Bill Shaw. Uh, Bob was in charge of the Omni. He was in charge of arena events. He was in charge of licensing and merchandising, uh, marketing, that type of thing. I was in charge of the television side of the business. Um, but we were both kind of equal. And Bob Dew and myself and Bill Shaw, the three of us, went to an event, a WWF event in Phoenix. Now, Bob and Bill both loved to play golf. They were like – you know, avid golfers. They love to play golf. I, I didn't play golf. I, I i drove the cart, mixed the drinks. That was it. But we went to Phoenix so they could play golf. And it was a WWF event there that particular at that particular time. And Bob and I and, and Bill decided to go check it out. Because, you know, at that time, WCW live events were just in a fucking tank. And nobody could figure it out. It was like this, you know the Holy grail to be able to you know, draw two or 3000 people that would actually buy a ticket. So we go, we thought, well, let's go see how they do it. It was a house show. It wasn't a televised event. So we went, we sat up in the cheap seats and when Randy came out and that was the first time I'd seen Randy live. That's the important part of the story. When Randy came out, the crowd just went nuts. And I, I you know, I don't remember who else was on the card, but I do remember Randy and, it was just amazing to me that six or eight months later, you know, I'm talking to him because, you know, Vince McMahon evidently wanted to retire him from the rent and didn't want him to wrestle anymore. So that's a very long winded first perception of Randy Savage.
0: So when you're, uh, when you're checking Randy out, I mean, at that point, do you sort of have an idea that, Hey, this is, this is what I want to do. Um, I mean, did you know right then this is a guy that I wanted or,
1: no, no, there was no way I could have, you know, foreseen the future. I didn't know, uh, I couldn't have imagined that he would be available to me, you know, where I was sitting. And again, you have to kind of put it in, in the right time frame. I want to say context, but I, I overused that. In the context of when I saw Randy, uh, we had no, there was no plan or aspiration or even wishful thinking that we would be able to bring in a Hulk Hogan or a Randy Savage. We certainly didn't know that Hulk would have been available or that Randy would have come available. You know, all we were trying to do was stop the bleeding at that time. Uh, We weren't thinking in any way, shape or form of talent acquisition. And we wouldn't have known that those guys, you know, six or eight months or a year later would be available.
0: Before we talk about the actual conversation you have with him, I'm fascinated by the idea of you and, and, and Shaw and Bob do and everybody, Going to a house show. How often did you guys do this? Was this a one-off? Did it ever happen again?
1: It was a one-off, and and again, I you know I love Bill Shaw and have a ton of respect for him. He's a really really good man, and he was a great executive at broadcaster one of the best. Um, but I will say, it was a boondoggle. These guys said, "Hey, let's go." We we the three of us need to get together off-site, which is you know code for, let's get the fuck out of town and go somewhere with a good golf course. And let's go somewhere off-site and, and really have a skull session and talk about what we want to do with WCW. And just coincidentally, that Offsite, And I think it was like in January or December happened to be at Phoenix that one of the, you know, we happened to stay at the Biltmore, which is a happens to be on one of the best golf courses in Phoenix. Uh, just all coincidental. I'm sure I didn't have anything to do with it. I just went along. Um, but the idea was while we're there, let's check out a WWE house show because there's one in town. So it was more coincidental than anything else.
0: Well, so there you go. Um, let's talk about the first time you actually have a conversation with Randy. I mean, up until this point, you probably have never spoken to him before you were actually going to do business with him. Is that fair to say?
1: Oh, yeah. No, it's 100% accurate.
0: So many months later, give me the timeline because I think Hulk Hogan gets the credit for making the introduction. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Uh, I, you know, and it's funny. Um, you know, we're, we're looking back now 20, 25 years at this point, 23, 24 years. And so much of this stuff, we've talked about this before. Um, you know, When I think back of all the things that I've been involved with, things that I've done, things that have been done to me, things that, have, that I've been a part of, good, bad, and ugly. You know, over the course of 25 or, th- or really for me, going back 30 years, starting in the AWA, all of it kind of just runs together. Right. Uh, it, it's like a movie that replays, you know, kind of on a fast forward, but all the scenes are out of sequence, because you remember those moments and you and you remember incidents, but it's sometimes difficult to remember them within a time frame or within the context of other things that were going on. But there's also certain moments that you remember, like you know, do you remember? You know, I remember where I was standing, and this is going to sound like random and obscure. But I remember when I was a kid, I remember exactly where I was standing when I heard that John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And and I remember that moment vividly to this day. And there are other moments like that in my life. And I remember exactly where I was when I got a phone call from Hulk Hogan. (coughs) And it was probably in August or September of uh, 94. I was walking through the airport in Detroit. I was connecting onto a, another flight. Uh, I think I was either coming back from a show or I was on business, doing something. But I was in Detroit and I had like a two-hour layover, and I got a phone call from Hall. Said, "What do you think of Randy Savage?" I said, "Well, he's a hell of a performer." I said, "Would you want to talk to him?" I said, "Well, sure." I said, "Here, hold on." <laughs> Whoa, I thought he meant, do you want me to set you up with a phone call or right. introduce you? Or do you want his phone number? He goes, hey, brother. <laughs> Whoa, fuck. And I wasn't ready for that. <laughs> but hey, Randy, how are you? <laughs> Good to talk to you. And it was really, it was a short conversation because we neither he nor I. know Randy was, you know, if you know, you, you know of Randy. Did you ever meet Randy Conrad?
0: No, I did not.
1: Randy could be. I hate to use the word paranoid because it kind of overstates it. But he was very, very careful, particularly with people that he didn't know or even people that he knew but didn't quite trust. And and I don't blame him for that. You know, especially, you know, the wrestling business kind of creates that character trait. But so Randy was very friendly, but I knew, you know, we weren't gonna get into a conversation about coming over. It was just Hey, how you are you? Good to talk to you. You're in good things, brother. You know, that kind of thing. L- letting me know that he'd be interested if I was is really the, the tone of the conversation. Yeah. And then uh, Hulk got back on and we talked a little bit and he said, you want to you follow this up? I said, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm on my way home. Give him my number. And, and that's how that started.
0: So you guys start a dialogue, and you know you've written a lot about this and talked about this a lot before. You know Savage is saying that he's not very happy with what he's doing, and he wasn't ready to sort of hang up the tights and put on a suit. And he hears that that's really the plan. I think McMahon had a meeting with him and said, you know, I'm I'm making a switch. I'm going to the youth movement, which is sort of the same thing he said to Flair a couple of years prior that brought flair back to wcw what did randy express about all of that to you and i guess we should we should mention that when when vince tells him this randy i believe is 42 years old and i know sometimes people say oh well that's old aj styles is 41 age is a weird thing i just wanted to put all that in context so what did Randy express to you about his situation with McMahon and, and what he hoped to do differently with you if there was an opportunity?
1: I mean, he was hot about it. He, he, I mean, he was he was very clear that he, did, he didn't see himself as a color commentator. He was insulted, quite frankly. And look, R- Randy was an athlete long before he got into professional wrestling. You know, we, we talk, you know, sometimes we joke about it. Sometimes we talk in depth about it. But, you know, the one thing that I think everybody that knew, worked with, was anyway associated with Randy would agree upon. Um, if you could only pick one word to describe Randy Savage, what would it be? And I would bet you 80 percent of the people would agree on intense. He was just such an intense. And I don't I mean it, with himself, he, he was competitive with himself. Um, he, he kept raising the bar for himself in every possible way that, that he could think of. Um, so when he got the word, and this is the way he articulated it to me. all right. Obviously, I wasn't there. I'm not that rumor and innuendo guy. I don't repeat second and third hand shit. But as it was articulated to me, um, he was pissed off about it. He didn't like being in the booth. He thought he had at least five or ten years left in him. And he believed in himself. He believed that he could still draw major money and he wasn't shy about saying it. He, he had a lot of confidence. So, um, when and he, and he told me that Vince told him that, you know, he's, he's putting him out to pasture. He's going to put him behind the booth. And just snapped. you know, when Randy Savage looked at himself in the mirror at 42 years old, um, and the, the, those of us who have passed that mark, You know, realize that, you know, as you get older, you, yeah, your driver's license says you're 42 or you're 52 or in my case 62. And you you know that, yeah, you can, you can add, you you can do the math. But when you look in the mirror, you don't feel that, you know, at least I don't. Most people don't. You know, and I'm sure when Randy Savage, giving his intensity and the level of competitiveness that was just part of his DNA, when Randy Savage looked in the mirror at 42 years old and Vince McMahon was telling him he was too old to work, you know, that didn't go over well at all. He was hot about it.
0: And you were what a few years younger than him at the time.
1: Oh, uh, this would have been '94, so yeah, I would have been 40
0: probably. So you're having a conversation about him wrestling. What does that conversation sound like? Are you guys talking about, you know, the number of dates and, uh, you know, the particulars about the financial end, or is it more about, you know, what would you do with me, brother?
1: No, he, you know, Randy, we talked a little bit about this on, um, Patreon yesterday, because I got a couple of really good questions from some of our patrons over there about Randy and Randy could be really difficult and challenging because he was intense and because he was borderline paranoid, you know, if not probably clinically paranoid in some cases. Uh, and that made it really hard until you, until he trusted you. Now, later on in our relationship, I had no problems with Randy. Randy was one of the easiest, you know, major talents. Um, there was for me to work with. I mean, we trusted each other completely. He he didn't doubt me, but in the beginning, I didn't. I didn't have that relationship, so it, it was a little more challenging. But when it came to, um, he didn't have the dates issue. You know, he wanted to know. He was aware. You know, but he knew we were only doing 180 dates a year. You know, he, at the time he came in, we probably weren't even doing that because right. we, we had cut the guts out of the house show schedule because they were losing money so badly. It didn't make any sense to do any more than you know necessary. So, you know, he, he he wasn't concerned about, you know, being on the road 325 days a year. In fact, he probably would have enjoyed that more, quite honestly, at the time. Um, he he was like Hulk and others who came in from WWF. You know, they, they looked at WCW as weak when it came to creative. W, WCW did not have a reputation for having, you know, a great idea on how to use a lot of people. So he was a little concerned about that, uh, more than a little concerned. And we did talk about that issue, and he, he was concerned about how he was going to be used. But he also knew that Hulk was there. Hulk and Randy were tight. Hulk was the reason that Randy got his foot in the door. Not that he, you know, if Randy would have called me on his own, he would have got there too. Sure. But the fact is, you know, Hulk and Randy had a history. Rocky one sometimes, but they had a history. And at that precise moment, you know, they had a good relationship. And I think Hulk was excited about Randy being there because Hulk knew that that was someone that, you know, he could draw money with. Randy was excited because Randy knew he could draw money with Hulk or believed he could. So I think Randy coming over knew that he was going to be at the top of the food chain, creatively speaking, uh, right off the bat. So that wasn't too big of an issue. Most of it was just. He wanted assurances that he was going to be featured. Um, he wasn't going to end up the same way he was ending up in WWF, being put out to pasture. I think he was concerned a little bit about the longevity of his deal. He didn't want to come in and just hot shot it and you know, be shown the door. Those were some of the issues. But honestly, uh, looking back at it, I, I think it was probably one of the easier deals. I, in fact, I know it was for a lot of other reasons namely Slim Jim, but it was one of the easier deals I've ever put together. His first one.
0: Well, we'll talk about uh, Slim Jim in a minute, but let's talk about the Hulk Hogan thing because I think, and you sort of alluded to it there. A a lot of fans know that there's been a rocky relationship and sometimes it was, you know, storyline and they didn't get along on camera, but a lot of times they had issues behind the scenes had, Hogan expressed any of that to you prior to you having the conversation and did it come up in your conversation with macho? Did he need any sort of reassurances about your relationship with Hogan or how that may affect him?
1: No, I knew, you know, because by, by the time, you know, Randy made it in, I had gotten to know Hulk pretty well and had spent some time with him, not only working, but you know, had gone down to Florida and, you know, in an effort to kind of get to know him and, build a better relationship with one of our top stars, um, we got into more social kind of conversations uh, as opposed to just pure business. And, you know, he, he would tell me stories. You know, Hulk is a great storyteller. Um, I wish we could get him to do a podcast with us at least once a month because he's a phenomenal storyteller with great recall when it comes to wrestling events. When it comes to what he did yesterday, um, forget about it. When when it's wrestling and he's got a phenomenal recall, much like Bruce Pritchard in a way. Um, but, you yeah, know, Randy or Hulk would tell me, you know, about some of the crazy shit, you know, that he and Randy went through. And he walked me through a lot of the ups and the downs and the, the jealousy with Liz and all of the drama and, you know, Liz and, you know, Jerry's ex-wife, Linda. I mean, I, yeah, I heard it all before I met Randy. Ironically, or interestingly, when randy came in he didn't have a bad word to say about it. he didn't imply he didn't suggest he didn't he didn't show his cards in any way shape or form with regard to having any concern about you know working with hulk or their, their previous relationship he was he was a real pro about that
0: is it fair to say that the bulk of the issues between hogan and randy in one way or another involved elizabeth
1: You know, I think Liz. Again, now this is just me, as a fan, right? And and I guess, fairly, uh, a spectator with good proximity. Um, I, I think Liz was probably, in some respects, a catalyst for some of the issues, but the issues were really Randy's. Randy had a desire to be completely in control of his situation and probably you know i didn't hang out with randy a lot uh, personally i mean i I went down to his condo we hung out a couple times and we did some things socially and we took a trip or two together uh short ones um but you know i I got to know him towards the end i got to know him fairly well socially as a person but i think from a business point of view and, and by the way before i go on Randy, when he, when he, you got to know – I'm just going to speak for myself. When I got to know Randy and he and I kind of passed the threshold of just business and me being the guy running the company and him being a top talent, when we actually kind of passed that threshold and became friends, friendlier, um, he was a very relaxed guy to be around. When you caught him in his environment, when I first, I remember the first time I went down to his he had a condo, I think it was in Indian Rocks Beach, Florida, if I'm not mistaken. And I went down and it wasn't about business. I was just, I was going to be in town anyway. He was there and you know, he, he invited me down. And Randy was a little bit of a recluse. You know, he wasn't a big social animal. You know, Hulk will go out and, you know, he'll walk through Clearwater Beach and he'll be signing autographs on his way to a steakhouse. And, you know, Hulk is like a walking, talking human billboard wherever he goes. Randy was a little bit more uh, reclusive. So when Randy said, hey, brother, you're going to be in town. Why don't you swing by? Here's my address. So I did. And like I said, we didn't have any business to talk about. But I remember the first time I walked into his house – there was such a dramatic difference between Randy Savage in his home and Randy Savage in the arena. The the Randy Savage in his own home was relaxed. He was chill. You know, he was super friendly. Uh, and and late, I mean, he was just he was just a completely different person. Uh, when he got to the building, you know, when it was business, it's like he had on his. He had on a coat of psychological armor. You know, I mean, he was just, his eyes were constantly, you know, he's looking around. He's he's listening to every word. He's trying to read people and trying to, to read into, you know, what they're saying based on the way they're carrying their body language. And I mean, he was just so intense that way that they, was, they were dramatically two different people. Um, and I don't know why I went off on that fucking tangent, but.
0: There you go. So let's talk about, you know, because one of the things he's got to be concerned about is his spot and the way he will be perceived. And he's got to be a little sensitive about getting a little older and you sort of referenced that you can do the math and you see that what your driver's license says, but. You know when you go from 42 to 62 you don't always feel it so let's talk a little bit about randy because he's certainly feeling the difference here because he's got somebody who's at least allowing him the opportunity to talk about coming in and doing some wrestling you said it was the easiest deal or one of the easiest deals you put together you guys discuss a dollar amount and you discuss a number of dates and how does slim jim slide into the conversation Looking for a great Mother's Day or Father's Day gift idea? I was, and I found it at Paint Your Life. With Paint Your Life, you'll get a hand-painted portrait created to fit almost any budget, and it's a great gift idea for your mother, your father, or both. You say Paint Your Life transforms your photos into a one-of-a-kind, beautiful hand-painted portrait created by professional artists. You upload anything you can imagine. You can even combine photos. You'll pick the artist, the medium. You can even customize the frame. And you can receive your painting in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at PaintYourLife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. Get 20% off your painting. That's right. 20% off and free shipping to get this special offer. Just text the word WEEKS to 87204. That's WEEKS to 87204. Text WEEKS to 87204. Paint Your Life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details.
1: I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and
0: entertainment. That
1: is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is in not as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the Deal. deal. Listen to the deal.
0: Listen to the deal on Spotify.
1: I'm going to get to that in just a second, but again, to kind of put this in the right context, just so people can kind of imagine what what that situation was like for me, Um, Randy. When when I think he made up his mind, you know, when when he with Hulk there. You know, he knew he was going to get a. He knew he was going to get a decent payday. He knew that he was kind of in, in a dead end situation that he hated in WWF. I think Randy made up his mind pretty early on in the process that he was going to to, to join WCW. There wasn't a you know a lot of, there wasn't a lot of dancing involved, if you know what I mean, but yeah. in, in the negotiation. Number one, number two, he had. I don't want to say childlike enthusiasm, but he would have swore this was his first really big opportunity. I mean, the, 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 the level of excitement and enthusiasm that he brought to just even to the discussions about what's possible, what's not possible, you know, when he was going to start, who he was going to work with. It was, it was not a typical discussion. It was not a typical negotiation. He was so enthusiastic about making the move. Um, that it made it fun, to be honest. As far as Slim Jim, <coughs> Slim Jim had been sponsoring Randy, I believe, in WWF. I mean, Randy brought Slim Jim with him, and at, while I was negotiating with Randy, I was also negotiating, or I don't want to say negotiating, but I was just, I was in discussions with Slim Jim because they wanted, they wanted to stick with Randy. They they loved Randy. They didn't necessarily love WWF. They Coincidentally, they were advertising in WWF because of Randy. But what they really loved and were committed to was Randy. Because uh, Randy had spent a lot of time. Uh, I believe Slim Jim was based in Greenville, South Carolina or somewhere. South Carolina, North Carolina. And Randy was spending a lot of time with their marketing people and their promotional people. And he had been for a while. So they loved him. So while I'm negotiating Randy's deal, I'm also – discussing slash negotiating, um, Slim Jim's relationship with WCW. And the truth is, I think I've talked about this before. Uh, it's been published before. Uh, the Slim Jim deal was, I don't know if it was a hundred percent of Randy's contract or damn close to it, but Slim Jim basically paid for Randy. It didn't really come out of WCW's budget. It was found money. We didn't have any sponsors at that time. And Slim Jim was willing to spend um, upwards of $750,000 for the first year for a series of pay-per-view sponsorships, television product placements, and that type of thing. So for, for WCW, that was found money. It didn't even have to go through Turner ad sales that went right to our books and didn't get filtered through the myriad of, you know, Turner broadcasting accounting, um, processes where we ended up getting 15% of the money that we actually generated, this money hit our bottom line immediately. So that clearly made the deal even more attractive. Uh,
0: I wanted to circle back now though, to talk about, you know, you mentioned $750,000 from Halloween havoc. Is that roughly the first year contract value for Savage that you recall? Yeah. So when you're having a conversation with him, that's obviously a pay raise Did he feel like, He's, he had been slighted a little bit since obviously WWF was profiting from some of that purchase as well. Right. I mean, when some of that money is rolling in for Slim Jim, it's not like it's a direct pass through, which is almost the way you were treating it here. Right.
1: I mean, yes and no. Looking back now, you know, in hindsight, um, if I was Randy and this careful how I say this. I guess if I was Randy's agent, let's let's rewind the tape. I'm Joe Blow. I represent the Macho Man Randy Savage. Randy is a great talent. He brings a lot of name value. His Q factor's high. You know, wrestling fans around the world know who he is, blah, 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 blah. There's a great opportunity with Randy as a key talent here in WCW. And additionally, he's bringing in three quarters of a million dollars worth of revenue. So, as Mr. Savage's representative, Mr. Bishop, I propose to you, you know, that Randy should be making somewhere around a million, million two, because that would recognize his talent value and would also recognize a percentage of the incremental revenue um, that he's bringing to the table that you won't have unless you bring him. And that would have been... That would have been a good argument. That would have been reasonable. What Randy, the position Randy took um, was he he liked the number that I gave him. And he didn't look at the Slim Jim money coming to WCW as, well, he should be getting a part of that. A lot of guys would have. But from Randy's perspective, WCW was making a buck. He's making a number that he's very excited about. I'm sure it was a big payday for him, a big race for him. But more importantly, the money wasn't the most important thing to Randy. This is what made Randy so unique. The money money was important. I'm not going to say it wasn't. But it wasn't the most important. The most important is he was going to get an opportunity. And I think he never said it. He never said anything negative about Vince McMahon or WWF. I mean, he was hot. He He disagreed with Vince about, you know. Positioning Randy behind the the announced booth and you know going with the youth movement and all that. He disagreed. He was very vocal and quite articulate about that. But he didn't badmouth anybody. He didn't bury anybody. I think what Randy wanted to do was prove. He wanted to prove to himself. He wanted to prove to, to WWF and Vince McMahon. He wanted to prove to us that he was still an A player. And he wanted to bring his A game.
0: Let's talk about his contract that's been released. Uh, the, the contract details, at least the value, uh, 1996, 743,492 dollars. This of course was made public uh, after a lawsuit for discrimination, but then a huge jump from 96 to 97, he would bring in over 1.9 million in 1997. Why the astronomical jump here?
1: Revenues were going up. Business was going up. You know, I, and I know it's 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 sometimes hard for me, even when I hear these numbers, and I'm sure it's hard for you as a businessman and, and fans who have never been in the position that we were in to understand. But you know, when you when you're bringing people in, and again, Randy was basically free. Let's start out with that. He brought $750,000 to the table with him and he and he asked for $750,000. So basically, he was free in, in terms of an expense for WCW, if, just for this discussion. All right. And WCW in 94 was not generating a lot of money. I don't recall what our gross revenues were at the end of 94. I would imagine they were somewhere around 40, 50 million. But By 96, 97, we were probably in the 200 million category, 150 million category. We were, we had become profitable for the first time in the history of WCW in its relationship with Turner Broadcasting. We we were in the black in a big way. And talent now wanted a, a piece of that. And when I say talent, I mean their management as well as some of the talent they wanted to share in that. And it's really no different, I guess, than looking at, you know, the rev share model at WWF, although, or WWE, although it's, it's a more, I guess, sophisticated model. But if you go to a house show and the house show loses money, you don't get bonus. But if you go to a house show and you sell it out and you're at the top of the card, you know, you're going to get a big paycheck. As a result, and it's kind of the same thing happened
0: here. So let's talk a little bit about, um, something you wrote in the book. You wrote hurting the WWE. Wasn't my motivation. I just wanted to make my company better, but you would also continue that, you know, a lot of people didn't always have that opinion. And one of the things that a lot of fans were curious about for all these years is why there was such a lag in the relationship with WWE, maybe Vince McMahon himself and macho man, because it feels like he was sort of scrubbed from history for a while, not welcomed right away into the hall of fame, certainly not acknowledged until after he passed. And a lot of people have bought into the silly rumor and innuendo of some sort of falling out with Vince over an inappropriate relationship with a member of the McMahon family. When did you hear that silly rumor? And what did you believe to be the situation between Savage and McMahon.
1: You know, I didn't really hear that rumor until, yeah, long after Randy, you know, joined WCW. And again, Randy never, he never buried anybody at, at WWF, WWE. He never had a bad thing to say. Uh, It's almost like, you know, that part of his life, that was his life. And he didn't, unlike a lot of guys who kind of constantly, referred back to their time at WWF and i want to be careful how I say this because sometimes I speak <clears throat> in shorthand and people hear something different than I really want to say. Um, there were people <clears throat> who had worked for WWF and worked for Vince McMahon who would come to WCW and of course they would tell me things or relay stories or frame things in such a way as to make me think that they were <clears throat> not, not only not loyal to WWF, but really wanted to, to drive a stake through their heart. You know, they, they would badmouth people, you know, they bad mouth, McMahon, they bad mouth, you know, Kevin Dodd, they bad mouth, whatever. I mean, I heard that all the time. And I, even though I was young, As an executive, I didn't really have that level of experience as an executive. I knew, you know, they're telling me what I wanted to hear, which is not unusual, especially in the wrestling business. It is what it is, right? And I I began to filter it out. But for the most part, I I didn't really pay close attention to it because I didn't believe half of it. I, I knew what was going on. Randy was different. Randy didn't do that. Like I said, he never, he never had a negative thing to say. And honestly, the, the, the issue between, you know, his past inappropriate relationship or whatever it was, it, you know, the first time I heard about it, it was more of a, a passing joke, right? Somebody taking a shot and the, and the way it was, you know, I, I don't remember where it was. It was on an airplane, I think on the way to somewhere. And the first time I heard about that. Cause I remember going, Whoa, get the hell out of here. It can't possibly be true. And, but it was, it was positioned as almost a joke that it wasn't to be taken seriously, Uh, a rib, if you will. So it, you know, I took notice of it, but I didn't think about it too much.
0: You wrote in your book too. Randy Savage and Hulk Hogan always had a bizarre relationship. Hogan originally brought Randy to my attention and really sold him. But I noticed early on, there was an undercurrent of hostility between them. They managed it, keeping it out of view and working together. But as time went on, it gradually became more intense. Randy could be intensely jealous and insecure. He was one of the most paranoid people I've ever met in my life. To this day, I haven't met anyone as intensely paranoid. And I like Randy. We got along. I had no business problems with him either. He was very much a straight shooter. He never played games, and you never had to play games with him. He knew exactly what was coming from him at all times, and I really respected that. But he was always worried about someone being out to get him. Can you give me an example of that someone being out to get him? Because we hear about the paranoia a lot. It is one of the things that people describe as one of his most prominent character traits. Can you think of a time maybe with booking or another talent that maybe he was a little paranoid that he have a situation with say a Kevin Sullivan or another talent, a Ric Flair, maybe. Here's what I,
1: here's what I figured out about Randy early on is the worst possible way to communicate with Randy Savage is through an intermediary. Meaning, if Kevin Sullivan had an idea that he wanted to do creatively, if Kevin gave that to somebody else to tell Randy, an agent, so to speak, or a producer, and that producer went to to Randy, bad deal. Because immediately, oh, whoa, yeah, why didn't he come to me with that brother? What's he, what's he hiding? That kind of thing. You know what I mean? With Randy, if you dealt with it, if you looked him in the eye, this is what I found early on, like the first time I met him. If you, if you kept eye contact with him, the conversation went pretty well if you allowed yourself to get distracted in the middle of a conversation by looking at your phone or looking around the room he would he'd read that i mean he had an amazing ability to read people and sometimes he overread them or misread them and what would happen with randy creatively speaking and what would what would create what was the catalyst for that you know paranoia or get him second guessing and third guessing is when people didn't deal with him directly myself included Um, And I learned, you know, early on, I learned the hard way or the fast way. Um, Just if I needed something from Randy or if I believed in something I wanted to do, just look him in the eye, maintain eye contact. Don't don't blink. (laughs) Just keep looking at him as you're talking, talking through it and it'll be fine. But some some people didn't find that uh is, is easily with Randy. And I think sometimes Kevin Sullivan probably had issues with him. And well, look, a lot of people had issues with Ric Flair. You know, Ric Flair was we've talked about this before, and you know Rick you know better than I do at this point. You know, Rick Rick has always loved to be loved by everybody. Rick didn't want to heat with anybody. And sometimes Rick would put himself in a position while he's avoiding heat and not wanting to be put in a bad situation with people that were his peers, which I completely understand. It's why putting a guy like Ric Flair or Kevin Nash, uh, who's you know a major talent and a Booker, is such a fucking horrible idea. But you know that also creates a little distrust because sometimes you're not as honest with the, you know, someone like Randy as you should be about something you want him to do. And the minute he senses, even just. A fragment of, oh, doubt or indecisiveness in the way you're presenting something, he would seize upon that and think you're trying to pull something over his eyes. So I think, you know, Randy and Diamond Dallas Page, which when I first heard these guys say they wanted to work together, you know, and and I heard, you know, them lay out what they – their vision for what they were going to do. I went, well, this is never going to fucking work. Randy's going to shoot page. He'll, he'll just put a bullet in his head before this thing ever gets to <laughs> before it ever gets to the ring you know because Paige had a certain type of personality and Randy had a certain type of personality what I underestimated and didn't realize is these two guys would just bore holes in each other you know staring each other down working on this thing in a positive way and they got they get along fantastically because it was Paige was a hundred percent transparent and so was Randy you know Paige didn't know how not to be transparent. He was obnoxiously transparent. He'd tell you shit. You didn't want to know and ready liked that. And I think that's one of the reasons they worked together together so well.
0: I guess that's important to mention that when you bring him in, it's coming in on the heels of a Halloween havoc. That was probably a bit of a disappointment. Uh, it was Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage. And when the buy rate number comes in, it doesn't exactly meet expectations. How far in advance of the announcement that you guys had worked a deal out with Randy, which would have been early November 94, did you actually start working on it? Because it certainly feels like a lot of the journalists at the time would think that this signing was in reaction to a poor buy rate.
1: No, that's not true. Again, you know, second, third hand, fourth hand information or at, at best. And and probably what those journalists were writing about is just them sitting in their basement in front of their computer, taking a wild ass guess and just making shit up. Uh, it wasn't in a rea- – there was never a reaction to a poor buy rate to suggest – I mean just think – just OK. So now you're going to get me fired up. Just – all anybody has to do. You could hate my guts if you're listening to this show and you're a big Dave Meltzer fan, and you think all I do is you know bury Dave Meltzer, whatever. Have it, believe whatever the fuck you want to believe. I really don't care. It's not going to change my life. But if you want to just kind of make yourself a little smart for a minute and and sit back and go, well, wait a minute. The only reason they signed, according to I'm assuming it was Dave Meltzer could have been somebody else. The only reason that they signed Randy Savage was because of this piss poor buy rate Halloween habit. Now, if you believe that or if you wrote that and you believed even a portion of it when you wrote it and published it, you would have to not understand or even be aware of the fact That Randy Savage came with a $750,000 fucking paycheck that he put on the table when he walked in the door.
0: To be clear, it wasn't written that, um, I mean, he even wrote Dave, the beginnings of the negotiations with Savage preceded the Hogan flair match, but it does feel like, Hey, maybe they knew they needed another money opponent. Because I think one of the silly stipulations here, even at Halloween Havoc was, this was a retirement match and flair lost. So he's going to go away. And of course. That step never stuck, especially in WCW. So, of course, he's coming back. But I think the thinking is Hogan maybe wanted to go back to what he knew. How much of that do you believe is true, that he drew the best WrestleMania buy rate you know, in a long time, a huge numbers at WrestleMania five. It exceeded all expectations. And they never really did a singles rematch in the WWF. They did tag matches at SummerSlam and things like that. But as far as them one-on-one... It hadn't been done in a while and the last time they did it it was hugely successful and hogan is the guy who puts you on the phone with him so some of that uh hogan wants to go back to what he knows makes sense does it not
1: i mean it can if you wanted to i mean if you want to buy into that theory and if you want to ascribe not you but if a reader or a listener wants to you know buy into the theory that the only reason that we brought brought you know randy in was the reaction, the way this was set up, you know, to a poor pay-per-view and feeling like we had to have another big money opponent for Hulk Hogan. And that was it. If you want to believe that, you can. And you'll probably find a way to justify it by referring to, you know, Hogan going back to what he knows, because that's partially true. Sure. We, We all know that. I've talked about that before. Here's the real reason. The real reason is because we saw growth. From the time we saw we we signed Hulk Hogan, we were starting to see positive growth. We were shoring up our expenses. We were watching our financials. We saw indicators that led us to believe that if we kept building our roster and the initial idea when I first came in, you know, to change our brand perception from being the little tiny southern, you know, me too kind of wrestling company who couldn't even get a free drink at a, at a major licensing and merchandising show or couldn't get anybody at direct tv to really pick up the phone and take our phone calls because our pay-per-view sucked so bad or couldn't book an arena anywhere in the country because everybody knew we couldn't draw is the only way we were going to fix those things was by bringing in talent like hulk hogan like randy savage hulk hogan worked Bringing in Hulk Hogan from a business-to-business point of view, not from a Dave Meltzer point of view, okay, not from your average wrestling fan point of view, but from a business-to-business perspective, bringing in Hulk Hogan had a significant impact on WCW's bottom line. And not only the immediate bottom line, but our ability to start talking to people from a business-to-business perspective that we weren't able to talk to. Whether it was improving our our pay-per-view positioning, whether it was improving the amount of marketing and support we would get for our pay-per-views, because now all of a sudden our pay-per-view partners believed that with these big names we could start drawing too. So they were willing to risk more money on our product. Those are all of the reasons why when Randy became available, it all made sense for all of those reasons. And certainly having somebody like Hulk or somebody like Randy to work with on the roster with a Hulk Hogan is certainly one of them. But to, for anybody to suggest that it was a reaction to a poor dissipating pay-per-view buy rate is a reflection of their ignorance.
0: Let's talk about um, the way Vince McMahon finds out because he actually has him advertised for a Madison Square Garden show at the end of November in 94. And he's going to be a special guest referee and of course that doesn't happen. And he announces in early November on raw, that they couldn't come to terms. And most everybody listening to this has seen that clip before. And then you guys debut him on WCW Saturday night with an interview with Mean gene Okerlund. And I think this was done at center stage in Atlanta and it's done in a way where you're trying to build intrigue and interest as to what's going to happen when he finally sees Hulk Hogan. And he teases in this promo that he's going to be at Starcade. And he wants to see Hulk Hogan, but he's not sure if he's going to slap him or shake his hand. And it feels like this is maybe too late in the game to put him into a match. So that's the next best thing, right?
1: It was. You know, and I watched that interview uh, yesterday on Patreon. Did a watch along. And I actually put my iPad um, on camera. So we literally, you know, with our followers over at Patreon, watched that setup uh, for WCW Saturday night. And, you know, a couple things that that I took away seeing that interview again. Um, One, first and foremost, is that Randy did a phenomenal job building anticipation. It wasn't a match. You know, it was a short window, as you pointed out. But, you know, to come into WCW Saturday night, he got a tremendous crowd reaction um, and cut what I think was probably about a three minute promo, if not longer. That he completely improvised. By the way, there was no script. That was the other great thing I loved about Randy. And Gene was spectacular as well, Gene Oakland. Um, but to go out there for three or four minutes and talk about, you know, meeting Hulk Hogan and am I gonna shake your hand, brother? Or I'm gonna reach my hand out, or I'm gonna slap you in the face and spin your head off your shoulders all the way back to Venice Beach, California. It's a fucking great promo but it did what it, what it should have done is create the question. This is one of the things to this day. If, if if I was ever in a position again, creatively and I learned, you know, I learned so much, especially during the last three or four years at WCW and, you know, year or two at TNA (coughs) about storytelling. And I learned it not, not so much in WCW and certainly I didn't learn shit in TNA other than what not to do. But, you know, since about 2003, I have been producing along with, you know, my, my former partner, Jason hurry. We've been producing television series, creating them, not just producing. Them. We would create the idea on paper, you know, reality unscripted stuff. And we create the idea and we'd sell it and we'd produce it, uh, for a variety of television networks, whether it's MTV, VH one, CMT, um, NBC, uh, Discovery, WGN. We we probably produced, created and produced um, twenty different television series uh, for for just about every network out there. And what I really learned doing that, and kind of marrying it to what I learned in thirty years of of, of wrestling is the storytelling process. And some of it we stumbled into, you know, the NWO is a perfect example. Some of it, you know, we got lucky. Some of it we didn't get so lucky. But the one thing that to this day, I really believe more than anything is if you can get your audience to ask themselves a question. So when you get done with a promo, like we saw a long winded way, I'm going to get right, right back around to your question. But when you, when you see a promo like Randy cut with me Gene on his debut in WCW on WCW Saturday night, December 3rd, 1994, you can find it on YouTube. Um, you watch that and then you just ask yourself, what did he accomplish? What did, you know, It's a great promo, a lot of energy, big pop, you know, blah, 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 blah. But what did he really accomplish? What he accomplished is he created doubt. He created anticipation, which is a, Key element in storytelling. People want to know what's going to happen when. And that's what he did. He could have just as easily come out and said, Oh, Golden, I'm going to shake your hand and we'll go from there. That would have killed it. Or he could have come out and said, Oh, Golden, I'm going to smack you right in your head. That would have killed it. But what Randy did so effectively, and it's not even a match, is make people go, Holy shit, I'm going to buy this pay per view to see what's going to happen when they meet. Because he created doubt. And I, I, I just thought that – and again, it's not like we talked about it for 45 minutes or an hour. We didn't have a staff of 15 little 20-year-old acne-faced, snot-nosed writers trying to figure out how to cut a wrestling promo. I mean this was just Randy going, okay, what are we doing? Okay, we're not going to wrestle. Okay, I'm going to make this good. Boom. <laughs> that, was, that was it. And it was, I thought it was excellent. I encourage everybody to go look at it. It's, it's the way wrestling promos should be cut.
0: You guys received uh, some sort of legal – letter uh, probably from McDivitt or certainly on behalf of Titan Sports a few days prior to Savage appearing on Saturday night saying that if he appears on TV it would be considered breach of his implied agreement with Titan since he wasn't under contract so that's interesting to me you're not saying that he's in breach of contract but he's in breach of an implied agreement when you when Turner executives hear that phrase do they just crumple it up and throw it directly in the trash can
1: yeah, that wasn't a big that was that, that was a weak shot. You know, if you're gonna fire, you know, listen, Jerry McDivitt and his firm absolutely destroyed Turner Legal in in their case with WC, and they shouldn't have. They WCW should have never lost or had to settle with, with WWF the way that they did because they were they were they just didn't fight. They didn't fight as hard. They didn't. They didn't deal with the facts the, the way they should have, and as a result, Jerry McDivid and his firm crushed Turner Broadcasting, in in their litigation with WCW. Um, but this this salvo was like it wasn't a shot over the bow. It was like somebody picked up a rock and they found a slingshot and they just thought they'd toss it their way and see what would happen.
0: Let's talk about Starcade '94. Uh, what a show this is. I can't wait for us to cover it sometime. It got 8.4% thumbs up based on the reader poll and the wrestling observer. Here is your starcade main event. Ladies and gentlemen, Hulk Hogan beat Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake. That's it. There's no one else in the match. It was Hulk Hogan versus the butcher. And, uh, I guess we should mention that after the match, Randy does a run in and shakes hands with the faces of fear, which is Kevin Sullivan, the butcher and avalanche. And they all act like they're going to ambush Hogan, but instead he turns on the heels and helps Hogan. And then they shake hands and do the posing routine credits three quarters of a star is what it got in the observer. What'd you think of the way you guys pulled off star 94 specifically with the introduction of Randy Savage at the end?
1: It's fucking horrible. I mean, it's just, you can't defend it. You can't justify it. Fortunately, you know, I went to look at that video because you sent it to me the other day and it's no longer available uh, according to the link that you sent me. Now I know I could probably go to the WWE Network and find it, which I probably will um, sometime when I'm in the frame of mind for some self-flagellation. Um, but <clears throat> it's fucking horrible. I mean, there's just nothing about it that was good. You can understand, I guess, if I try to pull myself out of it because it's a bad reflection on me, I guess, um, and I try to forget those things. <laughs> but you can you can kind of understand the basic story: Hogan and Savage. Right. There for a minute, we thought Savage was going to be against Hogan, but no, he's going to be his partner. And we all know that that would eventually, you know, lead to a split somewhere down the line. It's not a—it's not a difficult story to figure out. Any, anybody that's been watching wrestling for more than twenty minutes could do it. Um, but the Dungeon of Doom thing—the whole idea of putting together this ridiculous clusterfuck of misfits um, that weren't believable, that that didn't have an edge. They were all kind of – the one thing that brought them together was they were all coming together under the mastermind of, you know, the voodoo child, Kevin Sullivan, you know, to take out Hulk Hogan for a reason nobody really understood. Uh, It just – it was so nonsensical and cartoonish that um, I'm kind of glad the link didn't work. (laughs) I don't know. I don't
0: know if I'm up for it this weekend. Well, you guys, uh, were anxious to get Randy into the ring. So you debut him on the 6th and 7th of January in Birmingham and Montgomery, Alabama. He's replacing sting on top because sting was tired from a long trip from Japan. Meltzer would write quote sting only got polite applause each night and the matches were pretty dead. Uh, right away. You guys start putting him on the road and you even start doing lots of house show matches with him. Uh, including a television taping, uh, and uh, this era of WCW is sort of fascinating because while business is down, you've got such talent on here. You've got Dustin Rhodes, who of course, would become Goldust. Sean Paul Levesque, who of course would be triple H you've got Randy Savage wrestling Arn Anderson, and you've got old stars like Dick Slater there. What, I mean, how did Randy fit in in early 95 with this roster?
1: I mean, he fit in well, I'm going to go back to what we started talking about early on in the show. You know, his attitude was so good. And the guys loved Randy. I mean, Randy didn't come. Nobody, you know, when Randy came in, there wasn't a lot of guys walking around, you know, with long faces, kind of complaining and pissing and moaning because we're bringing in a WWF guy. Randy had a lot of respect. There was nobody that didn't respect. Randy had, everybody knew Randy had an amazing work ethic. He was smart. You know, he, he he'd been in the business a long time. He came up the hard way. He paid his dues. Um, he'd been to the big show. Um, so there was no, there was no resentment or or lack of chemistry or goodwill with anybody on the roster. So in terms of fitting in, if that's what you mean, you fit in great.
0: Let's talk a little bit about clash of the champions That's the first big show, January 25th, 1995, it goes down at Caesars palace sports pavilion. It's a sellout and you know, that's only 3,500 in attendance, 2,300 paid, but still, Uh, it's a gate in excess of $60,000. So from a gate standpoint, even 60 grand makes it the biggest clash ever. And your main event is Hogan and Savage taking on Kevin Sullivan and the butcher. And the thing I found interesting about this match is butcher puts Hogan to sleep with the sleeper and then Savage drops an elbow on Hogan, not to finish him off, but to wake him up, Hogan pops up and makes a comeback. The reviving elbow. How did Savage feel about this?
1: I guess pretty good. Cause he did it.
0: It's just, it seems <laughs> I mean, like it shits on the finish a little bit. Does it not? It does.
1: It's kind of counterintuitive from a creative point of view, but he, you know, what's <laughs> not, but what's so interesting now looking back at some of this crazy shit, which this was one of those moments that I would classify as crazy shit for a lot of reasons. Um, but when one of the, Fun things for me was, let me back up. I'm going to preface this, and I've said this before. I want to say it again. 94, 95, I, you know, I was really uncomfortable in the creative process. I knew what I didn't know. Let's put it that way. I I tried to surround myself with the best people that I could get my hands on, that I believed could have the right answers, and that's not that's not fading the heat. You know, the, the truth is, I knew what I didn't know. I didn't fancy myself as a booker. I was never exposed to the creative process in the AWA at all. Conversely, you know, just in case we have new listeners here, I was not only not exposed to it, I was um, framed out of it. I mean, I, I was, that was a no fly zone for me. If I would have tried to get anywhere near it, if I would have even asked a question, about the creative process or a decision or a storyline, you know, Bergani would have booted me in the ass and shown me the door. So it was an alien world to me in AWA. When I got to WCW, I'd show up on Sunday night. I would do what I needed to do as an announcer, probably Monday, Tuesday, sometimes on Wednesdays. And I get on a plane and I leave. I had nothing at all to do with the creative. Now I was a fan, like, a lot of people listening to this and I had opinions, but I didn't really understand the process. So by the time I got put into the position of executive producer or even as vice president, I, I, that whole world of creative was alien to me still because I had never really been exposed to it. So <clears throat> I would sit and listen and watch <coughs> Some of the people that I put, you know, whether it was Ric Flair, Kevin Sullivan, Dusty Rhodes, certainly Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage, some of the other talent staying. No, I'd listen to these guys lay out matches because I wanted to learn. I, kn- I knew what I didn't know. And what I didn't know was the detailed process and the psychology of putting things together. Right. So this was early in my educational <laughs> journey, if you will, from a creative point of view, and I would sit and listen to Hulk and Randy, and these two guys were like, they were like gasoline and flamethrowers. They'd start out, and, you know, these conversations would start out, Well, now I'm talking about great ones, okay, fun ones, alright? Not that the end result always turned out great, but in this case, you, you'd watch these guys laying these things out, And Hulk would like throw a gallon of gas on the fire and then Savage would come back with another flamethrower. And it would just they would just try to over the top each other. And sometimes it would just get out of hand. It would get crazy. And I think that's probably what happened here is they just started laying this thing out. They get excited, you know working with each other and visualizing how this is all going to work. And all of a sudden somebody threw out a wacky ass idea. You know what, brother? You're going to go to sleep and I'm going to come off the top rope and drop an elbow on your skull. And you're so tough. You're going to wake up. You're going to kick out. They won't expect that. Well, that's true. <laughs> but a lot of times even the guys didn't think through the ramifications and moves like that. I and mean, We still see it today. It's not unusual today to see silly shit just like that. Um, that is kind of a finished killer or, uh, just takes things from the believable to the unbelievable, um, with, with spots and finishes and things like that. But these guys were, you know, they, they were vulnerable to that kind of high spot too. You know, they, they'd get it occasionally.
0: Let's keep the good creative rolling. February 95 brings a super brawl. We get Savage and sting here, teaming up to take on avalanche and big Bubba Rogers. Of course the baby faces get the win There's a great promo here that you should go out of your way to search. Uh, you can just throw it in your Google machine. Macho man is not talking. That's a fun promo with sting and macho man here. Macho man is ruined. All the house shows uh, or almost all of them, especially the really smaller venues, you know, places like Gainesville or Amarillo or Waco. And I guess here at the time, he's got to be having some sort of positive impact on house show business because Hogan's not working the majority or any of these house shows So he's sort of the headliner by default. Let's talk about uncensored March 19th. Uh, this is a show I can't wait for us to cover in long form sometime, but on this card, we get Randy Savage getting a win over avalanche. And interestingly enough, Ric Flair in drag happens here. Uh, wow. Tell me what you remember about the idea to put together. Uh, Savage and Flair, obviously they had a world title match at WrestleMania eight, so fans know about the history. But Rick Flair and Drag, who booked this shit? Rick. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great.
1: I mean, come on. I mean you asked the question. He's your future father-in-law.
0: Chat me up. <laughs> what do you think about, um, the decision to put flair and savage together? That's a flair call.
1: I think it was a flair call. I think it was, I, I mean, all of us thought it was a great idea. It, it was, it's not a tough call. You got two of the biggest names in the business. They have history. They've got legacy with the audience. They know the story. Um, how could you not put them together? Even if it's put them together to split them up, um, from a storytelling perspective, um, yeah, you had to go with that. Are you kidding me? And you knew, or at least at that point, you know, I believed 100% that you're going to get an amazing product out of it. Are you kidding me? Ric Flair and his ability to not only work magic in the ring, but what he could do with a microphone when he was properly motivated. Uh, Randy Savage, same thing. Um, it had all the potential in the world.
0: Kevin Sullivan has gone on record as saying that Hulk really wanted – To have a monster factory, and he wanted guys that he could trust. Is the decision to pair Randy with so many former WWF talents a Hogan Hogan's influence or a savage's call? I ask because, like Clash of the Champions, they're in there with the Booker Kevin Sullivan, and the Butcher, the old Brutus, the fucking Barber Beefcake Super Brawl. He's in there with Avalanche, the old Earthquake, and the old Big Boss Man. And then even, you know, at Uncensored, he's back in there again with the old earthquake, and he's going to be feuding now with Ric Flair, again, someone he knows from the WWF. Is that based on Hogan's influence to appease Savage, or is that just who you had at the time?
1: And so it's both. Um, Hulk didn't make, you know, going back to when Hulk, you know, came into WCW, I mean, one of the things once we got past all the – the and I know we're talking about Randy here, but I want to make sure I do a good job answering that question. Once we got – Hulk and I got past all of the, the niceties and the informal part of the process of, of negotiating a deal, one of the things that became abundantly clear was that Hulk didn't trust a lot of people in WCW. He knew that he'd have heat. He told me that flat out. We still joke about it to this day. I talked to him last night, as a matter of fact, and we referenced something that was going on. And, and he said, I told you, brother, <laughs> You work with me. You're going to get heat. And, and he knew that he'd have heat coming in and he didn't want to deal with it. That's why Ric Flair was so instrumental in getting Hulk Hogan into WCW, because H- Hulk knew that no matter what, he could have a great match and he could trust Ric Flair. And if Rick Flair was booking and he was working with Rick, Hulk felt comfortable. Now, <clears throat> to this, to your question, you know, that concern continued. You know, Hulk did, Hulk, it, based on his past experience, <clears throat> and it's easy to look back now and be critical of it. But, you know, in 94, 95, we're, we're talking only... Three or four or five years previous, Hulk was tearing on the house with some of the names that you mentioned. Not necessarily Brutus, but you know, he was he was he was doing great money with some of those names. So in his mind, at that time and context, he believed that he could do it or at least do well enough to justify it again. Not only that, from a business point of view, but he did trust those guys. You know, Hulk Hulk was. You know, when he got to WCW '94, you know, even with Randy, because of the nature of his personality, they wanted to be in there with guys that would make them look as good as possible, that they could, that they did trust, not only trust from a uh, an integrity perspective, but trust from a from from a physical perspective. That you know it would be a good dance. You don't you don't want to go on Dancing with the Stars with a partner that you're not confident is is not going to two step with you and make you look as good as you can look. And some of those choices that you just mentioned um, were probably you know a result of that.
0: <coughs> Let's talk about Slam 1995. Here we've got Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage beating Ric Flair and Vader. Uh, the match gets a star and three quarters. Uh, I feel like we should mention here that we've got Angelo Poffo here involved in the angle. Tell me in the world, how in the world, Angelo Poffo winds up on a WCW pay-per-view and there's physicality here. I mean, I think he's like 70.
1: Randy was pretty insistent upon that, you know, Randy, you know, to the day he died was so passionately loyal to his family, his mother, his father, and his brother, um, that when the opportunity came about <clears throat> to interject his Tad, it didn't make any sense. It wasn't something I was excited about doing, but it was an accommodation.
0: So it looks like uh, the the newsletters would report after this quote: "The Randy Savage heel turn is now scheduled for the spring of '96." Now, of course. We're not actually going to see that the way we think we will. A heel turn will happen eventually. But at this point, were you guys sort of eyeing Randy Savage and Hulk Hogan at Starcade for 1996, do you think?
1: Yeah, we were. I mean, that was, you know, bringing Randy in and and teaming him up with Hulk, as I said, you know, 40 minutes ago or so. You know, the idea was originally to split them up. That's why you bring two guys in. I'm going to shake his head. I'm going to slap his face. Well, he shook his hand. Wow, they're friends. Well, eventually you get if you're gonna tell a good story, at some point, you know, with that talent, there's gonna to have to be an element of betrayal. Somebody's gonna to have to screw somebody. And that was the intent and that was generally the plan of the art.
0: Let's talk about um the way the relationship was changing a little bit because it feels like some of the boys at this point who were there sort of pre Hogan, pre-Savage. May have been a little upset. Uh, Steve Austin has gone on record as saying that he was upset with what he called Hogan cronyism. And he had a meeting with you at center stage in May of that year to sort of work through everything. Was Randy Savage discussed there? Because I think you guys uh, had Randy Savage beat him fairly quickly in a match on TV in this era. Was Austin sort of a burr in your saddle or do you feel like he had a, um, a valid point and you just sort of had to acquiesce to the bigger star?
1: It wasn't really as much about acquiescing to the bigger star. I mean, that, that makes it a personal kind of issue. It was really about recognizing what was happening to the business. On the business side of the equation – all of our indicators were looking up things were pointing in the right direction based on the direction that we were going. Even though some of those ideas, some of those matches were horseshit, were bad choices, bad decisions. Overall, if you just step back and kind of looked at the macro of what was going on in WCW purely from a financial point of view, if you worked in Turner finance, you would go, Hmm, these guys are doing it right. Saving money, Increasing revenue, bigger sponsors, opportunities we've never had before, better positioning. Th- things are good. So from a wrestler's point of view, from Steve, and I do remember the conversation, by the way. I remember also a, a, a small element to that conversation that I'm not sure Steve Austin will remember. And probably the next time he sees me, he's going to kick me in the balls for bringing it up. But I'm going to do it anyway at the end of this. Um, I do remember the conversation. And there was – I don't want to say resentment because, again, that makes it sound personal. But there was an awareness with a lot of talent, previous – you know, talent that was there prior to, to Randy and Hall coming in that things were changing. Um, and, and guys that were friends of Hogan uh, were being positioned uh, more favorably than some of the guys who weren't friends of Hogan or were WCW pre Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage, it was obvious to them. And and Steve was one of those guys. And he was, um, you know, he wasn't in this particular meeting and it wasn't long. It was like a five minute conversation. Um, and I remember it because I think it was one of the last face to face conversations that, that Steve and I had about business. Um, he, he, came to me and he, again, yeah, cause Steve and I are good friends and I, and I really, you know, first of all, I respect all of them and I like him a lot. Secondly, I want to, I want to try to relay this as accurately as I can. Steve caught me coming out of one of the dressing rooms and the center stage was really, really small. You know, you got 60 or 80, you know, wrestlers there, whatever it was, 40 or 50 wrestlers. You've got 25 or 30 production people running around. You've got office people running around and the rooms are all the size of, you know, janitorial closets. So it was a really, really there was no place to go sit and have a conversation, uh, really. So, uh, Steve caught me coming out of one of the, the smaller dressing rooms and pulled me aside and started to have a conversation about, you know, his role. What, what's what's going on with him and you know some of it had to do with you know a lot of the guys that we were using that were as I refer to friends of Hogan's um, but Steve also had a suggestion Steve if you don't remember this I'm sorry <laughs> but Steve also said okay well why? because he was frustrated he wanted you know he saw what was going on and look the, even though the talent didn't know anything about the business of the wrestling business. They knew about the, you know, their part of it. They knew what, they knew what was going on in the ring and, you know, crowd reactions and so forth, but they weren't exposed to the business side of the equation, the way the rest of us were, but they could still see the handwriting on the wall. You know, the information was getting out, how shows were doing a little bit better. As I said, without beating it to death, all indications were good. And Steve wanted to be a part of that. That's when he came to me and he said, you know, he, he had an idea. He wanted to work with Hogan. I said, "Great." What's your idea? He goes, "I'm gonna. I, I'm. We find out that I'm his long lost brother." I remember at the time, Steve had, Steve and Hulk had about the same hair, <laughs> and the same same male pattern baldness going on. So, that you know, that was the beginning. It's not. I'm not making light of the idea. It could have. Hang on. I guess.
0: Hang on. Hang on. You're being serious right now.
1: No, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not kidding. No, I'm not kidding. Yes. I'm being serious.
0: The pitch was Steve Austin could be the long lost brother. Yeah. Wow.
1: That was, that was the point. Now we didn't get, look, it could have been a phenomenal idea. Had we sat down and Steve detailed it and laid out an arc, there could have been an amazing story there. I mean, it sounds a little, you know, ridiculous, Just the way I'm laying it out to you right now, because there was no depth to it. There was no story to it. There was no beats to it. There was no twists and turns to it. It was just, okay, I got an idea. Here's here's basically it. I'm Hulk Hogan's long lost brother. So, you know, because we didn't have time to sit down and talk about it. um, And at least, you know, Steve was offering it up. He wasn't just bitching and moaning to his credit. He wasn't being a, a dick. He was looking for a way to integrate himself into that, that that category with Hulk. He wanted to work with Terry and, and he only had like two minutes to pitch his idea. So as ridiculous as I'm guessing you think that idea sounds and maybe it was, and maybe he didn't have any depth to it beyond that. I don't know. We never followed up on the conversation. Um, but, yeah, he, 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 his idea was to work with Hulk and try to work himself into that, that category by being Hulk Hogan's long-lost brother. Steve, I'm fucking sorry, bro. <sighs> I will buy the beer next, next time, I promise.
0: Let's get to the Great American Bash. Uh, this one gets a 42% thumbs up that year. And Ric Flair takes on Randy Savage here. And Flair gets the win. It's a four-star match. Great reviews uh, from Dave Meltzer, who even goes so far as to say, anyone who says Flair is washed up as a worker can eat it as a draw. Maybe another story. It's been years since Savage has put out like this. Basically, this was everything you would have expected from a match between these two and their primes. What do you remember about this match? We're going to talk about the fallout from it, but this match as it, as it was, is still a match that people talk about as one of their best.
1: It was. And as we discussed a few moments ago, you know, on paper, Randy Savage, Hulk Hogan, how could you not bet on that? How could you not bet on that? Now, even I guess more clearly, if you knew Randy Savage and you knew Ric Flair on a personal level and how they, what drove them you would bet everything you could possibly beg Bauer or a steal on that match, and they over-delivered. They did because of who they are, who they were at that time. Randy had a ton to prove, and so did Rick. You know, Rick had been, you know, Rick was dealing with, and this will be a topic for another show, I'm, I'm sure, but, man, I remember the first time I ever talked about a retirement match to Rick Flair. Uh, I mean, I would have had an easier time, trying to talk him out of his former wife. Well, especially at that time.
0: That would have been pretty easy, I think. <laughs>
1: yeah, I was going to say, that's not a good analogy whatsoever. He'd be like, yeah, take her! Cleo, come here! Cleo! Eric wants to talk to you! <laughs> um, but Rick, man, you, you mentioned retirement in front of Rick, especially if it was in a match where he was going to retire. Holy shit. I guess, He, he came unglued.
0: I guess we should mention there the wife you're referring to is his second wife beth but his nickname for her was cleopatra and that nickname was given to her by Arne anderson so cleo is the nickname for beth uh july 17th observer would write this Flair, who will remain in the company but no longer a part of the booking committee uh, that was a lot of the reason but don't rule out other factors including randy savage still being upset at the great american bash Not necessarily that he lost via pinfall, but that the loss was done without outside interference, which was the original plan. Can you speak to that? Because you guys do do a rematch uh, at Bash of the Beach 95, which was the outdoor show. And Savage gets a pin there. The theme here, of course, is it's outdoors and it's a lumberjack match. And they they sort of teased that Elizabeth was going to be a part of that, but she winds up not being. It's not nearly as well received as the first match. It only gets two and three quarter stars. And we're just a month out from a four-star match between the two. Was there sort of some hurt feelings on Randy's side about the finish the first time? And what'd you think of the rematch at bash of the beach?
1: There was none that I was aware of. Randy was Randy, And this is, and again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, not going to go off on dirt sheet writers, but this is where so much of the, false narrative, you know, and, and I guess, look, here's the good news in the wrestling business. Thank God that wrestling fans are probably more interested in what goes on behind the scenes in the wrestling business than they are in many cases, what goes on on television. Otherwise you and I wouldn't be doing this podcast. Right. We wouldn't be the number, probably two rated podcast wrestling podcasts in the world right now, if that were the case. Right. True story. Because our, our fans are wrestling fans are I mean and not only are they interested in what goes on behind the scenes they're interested in what went on behind the scenes twenty fucking years ago, so that's a good thing and I'm grateful for it I really am. Um, that being said, sometimes that passion and energy kind of creates a distorted view of the world because it, it starts. You know, somebody will say something in a chat room or somebody else write something in a dirt sheet uh, or somebody will say something in a bar to one of their friends, whatever. And all of a sudden these these stories start emerging about what was going on backstage and who had heat with who and who was upset about a finish that, that aren't true, that never were true, but they've, they've manifest now in the history and the legacy of some of the top talent in the world. In in this case, I will say Randy Savage never had a problem doing a job. Randy, Randy's only deal was it had to make sense, and sometimes Randy's idea of sense didn't make any sense. But as as you know, we talked about in the in the finish or in the uh, the sequence with Hogan, where he dropped an elbow on him and woke him up. Um, that was just his intensity, right? That was just kind of sometimes going over the top, up over the top. But if you laid out a good finish, particularly in a match like Flair and Hogan, Randy knew intuitively that fans want to see a finish, especially if it's going to lead to something else. Um, Randy didn't have a problem with that. And believe me, if Randy would have had a problem with it, all, all respect to Rick, there would have been a compromise. Rick would have, by, by the way, Rick would have wanted a compromise if Randy would have had a problem with it. That would have been Rick's decision to compromise if Randy had a problem with it.
0: You guys do another clash in early August. This time we've got Hulk Hogan beating Kamala and uh, Savage is doing commentary for this one. And there's a big schmoz at the end. Of course, we're going to see Sullivan and the Zodiac and Shark eventually Sting and Randy Savage make the return. So it looks like you're building towards some sort of dungeon of doom versus the mega maniacs and the partnership with sting continues even on a set of tapings at center stage we see sting and savage beat the blue bloods and sting is dressed up even wearing the face paint so he sort of um uh color coordinates with savage and savage is wearing the face paint as well so they're sort of going all in here having tons of tag matches and, and matches together whether it's on tv or house shows what was the relationship like between sting and savage
1: was very solid very very solid first of all sting was so easy in that regard he sting would question because he really wanted to understand sometimes we'd come to him with things that made no sense when I say we I mean whether it was Rick Flair or Kevin Sullivan or, or me or anybody else you know he he'd question you and you know he kind of curl his his forehead would kind of curl up and he'd look at you and you know lower his head and kind of look at you underneath his eyelids and kind of go, what the fuck? he'd never say that, but that was the look he'd have on his face. But once you kind of laid it out to him, he was all in. He, he just, he, he's a very gracious and generous performer. He just wanted to make sure he understood. And I think with Randy sting understood And he was in there with a guy that, you know, he was elevating himself. You know, it wasn't like he was diluting his character by putting over Randy's. And Randy, conversely, was putting over Sting's. I mean, how how could you not get excited about that? If you're Sting and you've you've lived in WCW, you've lived in the shadows of WWF, you've been considered a second-class citizen not only by the people you work for, Turner Broadcasting... But by the wrestling fans as well, with the, with the exception of a small, you know, core loyal audience, you know, in, in, in the South, you know, TBS audience. So for Sting to have an opportunity to work with somebody on Savage's level that was equally as generous and, and, and you know, hoping to elevate, you know, themselves and each other simultaneously, how, how could Sting not be excited about that? And he was.
0: What was the uh, reaction to Luger coming back? Luger of course had been in the WWF and Savage had obviously worked with him there. A lot of people would say that Luger wasn't, um, the best person to work with the best coworker. Do you remember having any sort of conversation with Savage or hearing any sort of whispers about Savage and Luger having some sort of iffy relationship at all?
1: I'll go back to what I said. This is one of the things that I admire about Randy, you know, People ask me about him and what he was like. And there, there's a lot. Um, first and foremost, I love the way he treated my kids. You know? And that's how I judge people for the most part. It's, it's not how how they necessarily, what they do, what they say, well, I judge them by what they do, but not so much what they say or what my perception of them is, but how they treat people in, individually. And I, I watch Randy, and there were times when, you know, down at Disney or at a pay-per-view or on the road, Sturgis, whatever. And my kids were almost always around, you know, in the summertime when they weren't in school. And there were times that I'd be, you know, in a distance, I'd be watching Randy, you know, interacting with my kids and he, he wouldn't see me. He didn't know I was, you know, 25 yards away across the room and catering watching, but I watched how he treated my kids and he, he was genuine. He wasn't He wasn't doing it because they were my kids. He was just genuinely a good human being and he treated kids. Well, he treated a lot of people really well. Um, The other thing that I, I, I admired uh, about Randy. One of the things is just, as we talked about a little earlier, his directness, he was just so easy to communicate with. He didn't have to read between any lines. I'm sorry. I need you to help me out. I can't remember the first part of the question.
0: Just about Luger and, and Savage. And you know, when he okay. comes, you talked about how he really got along great with Sting. Did that change with Luger or was it very similar to Sting?
1: No, and I'll, I'll go back to the question. I went off on a tangent about, about Randy and how he treated my kids and other people. The other thing I really liked about Randy is he didn't badmouth people. If Randy had an issue with somebody, he dealt with it directly. He He didn't, he, you know, he didn't badmouth people. He didn't bury anybody. Not that he never did to me. I, I only know, I only know what I know in, in terms of my relationship with Randy. He never had a negative word. He may not have said anything about Luger, and maybe that was Randy's way of uh, dealing with someone that he was uncomfortable with for whatever reason, if indeed he was. But. He never, when we brought Lex back to answer your question specifically, um, he never had a negative thing to say. I, I would have never guessed that there was eight between them if there was.
0: Well, I didn't know that there was. I just know he's a, a rather polarizing figure. Of course, we're mentioning him because uh, Nitro is going to go down at the debut, and um, that's where we see Luger return. Uh, the upfronts, or the press conference, as it were, when you guys are announcing Nitro, flair's not there savage is there's got to be some sort of licensing strategy because you've talked a lot about the business of the wrestling business given his association with slim jim it's a no-brainer to have savage represent you with that is it not of course it is
1: and it, and it is also and i can i could understand and i don't know you know rick and i have never talked about this and maybe you have with him i i don't know um I don't recall Rick taking exception to that. He didn't care. Um, but I, I do know that for me, for Turner Broadcasting, for TNT, Brad Siegel, um, we had to let people know that we weren't just the same old WCW. No disrespect at all to Ric Flair, to Arn Anderson, to Sting, you know, to, to whoever was helping to keep WCW even alive during all that time, up until Nitro but the hard true reality was that we needed to convince advertisers uh, and cable systems that we're the fucking real deal and Randy and Hulk were you know a means to that end
0: So let's talk a little bit about um, you know, what we're building towards. And I, and I think everybody knows that we're building towards the big world war three discussion. It's our number one requested topic, but on our way there, we're sort of priming the pump a little bit Halloween havoc. We see Randy Savage pin the Zodiac, which is Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake in a minute and 30 seconds. And this happens because Zodiac was subbing for Kamala who decided to quit the promotion rather than do a job here. Uh, And this is um, notable because a fan hops over the guardrail and referee uh, Randy Anderson tries to hold him back. Savage immediately takes his match outside of the ring to get as far away from this real interaction as he can and keep it off the cameras. The match is a dud. What do you remember about Kamala? I mean, is this true? Kamala refused to lose to the macho man, so he just fucking quit?
1: I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true at all. I I think there were other circumstances involved in that. Um, Kamala had travel issues. Kamala was not in great health, right at the time. Um, there were there were other extenuating circumstances. The length of his contract wasn't uh, one that he was hoping for. There was no real guarantee in anything for him. Um, I think there was a, there were a lot of other things, but you know not doing a job for randy savage is not not one of them
0: it's also the famous night here halloween havoc 95 which i can't wait for us to talk about where hogan loses the belt to the giant uh, but we're going to set up of course the big show world war three 1995 it gets a an overwhelming thumbs up 69.3 percent and this is everybody in one match. And I'm sure we'll talk about this in long form some other time, but the result is Randy Savage becomes the World War three winner and the world champion. And it goes down on November 26th in Virginia. Why was the decision made to put Savage over here earlier in the night? He has a singles match where Luger beats him, but then he comes back, wins the battle Royal and now he's the champ. And, this is talked about a lot because of the Hogan involvement. What do you remember about world war three and the decision to put the belt onto Randy Savage here?
1: Well, Randy had been with us now for almost two years by that point.
0: Well, it was a year. I mean, he came in in November of 94. Oh, no, so we're one, right. we're one year okay. later. Okay. So he'd been with us
1: about a year at that point. Um, just under a year. Um, and it was time. I mean, he was a top player. I mean, it's not a really, it it shouldn't be talked about too much. Why wouldn't you put a belt on a guy like Randy Savage?
0: Well, I think the idea is that Hogan wasn't eliminated. And so as a reminder here, uh, what happens is uh, Hogan's dumping a bunch of dudes out, like three at a time, and then he's pulled under the bottom rope by the giant. And the camera's on Hogan. Savage, who's not on camera, is dumping gang over and before anybody really knows what's going on, Savage is announced as the champion and Meltzer would write Hogan complained that he never went over the top, but was booed like crazy for doing so. Hogan even went to the crowd, which in an earlier interview, booed him out of the building. and was chanting Hogan sucks at him so loud. They had to turn the crowd noise down during the interview and asked to tell Savage and the ref that he'd gone under the bottom rope and not over the top rope. And the crowd for the most part is reacting by screaming. No, at him. Uh, Of course, Meltzer would put it over saying the battle Royal was said to be good live on television, but with three rings, three pictures, three announcing teams, the first 15 minutes feel like we're watching test patterns. And I think a lot of people would agree that as a live event, a spectacle, it's easy. I mean, it's fun, but on TV, it does present a certain set of challenges. But the idea here is it's supposed to be Savage's crowning moment, but instead Hogan saying, I didn't go over the top brother. What's the thinking here?
1: Probably trying to build story, laying the foundation for a story in the future. Be my guess. You know, I'd have to ask him, honestly. Sure. I, I certainly didn't pick his brains when, when when it was over with. But, you know, hearing it laid out the way you're laying it out, knowing all the way I, I know I'm now, new and then. Um, it's probably one of those improvisational things he did to kind of at least lay the seed or lay the foundation for something in the future so that it could go somewhere.
0: The show goes off the air uh, with these two guys celebrating because as Bruce would tell us, Hogan must pose. So there you go. It's Hogan's uh, or Savage's rather first year in WCW. We talked a lot about the contract and uh, the way it was signed and immediately putting him into, you know, comfortable matches with old opponents, his big feud. They got a four-star match with Ric Flair. And then a rather interesting finish. And I'm sure we'll cover that pay-per-view some other time. Let's take some questions. We asked you on Twitter at 83weeks if you wanted to ask Eric a question, and we're going to rapid-fire some of these, Eric. Are you ready? Ready. Josh Kuhn wants to know, where does Macho Man rank all-time in Eric Bischoff's opinion?
1: One of the top three.
0: Rusty wants to know, did Savage and Liz ever appear as if they would rekindle their romance?
1: No, they never did. And, I'm you know, it's interesting. We didn't really cover that much in the show. And I'm going to take the opportunity to do it now. Um, Randy was really, Randy was a big advocate to bring Liz in and, you know, going back to some of your early questions about, you know, my perception of Randy and concerns I may have had about Randy based on what I had heard earlier. um, I was at this point, you know, when, when Randy wanted to bring Liz in, I was a little nervous about it because I, the history, you know, bringing in your ex-wife, You know, knowing that Randy had a reputation for being insanely jealous um, and overprotective, uh, probably the better way to say it, really, I really questioned my judgment in making that decision. But I will say that Randy was 100% professional and he was very protective of Liz. He, He was creatively, you know. he he didn't demand that she be treated like a queen or special or anything like that. But he was always, he always kept an eye out for Liz. He was always wanted to be in the loop on what she was doing creatively because he felt he still loved her. You know, he didn't love her in the same way um, as he did when they were married. But I think the relationship between Randy and and Liz was still very strong for both of them. Um, But, when we brought Liz in, it was a completely 100% professional, didn't create any issues. And that's, that's not an easy thing to do, especially in a wrestling environment, especially with your ex-wife, especially given you know, the nature of their relationship and all the things that they had been through.
0: Jill wants to know, was it awkward with Savage and Elizabeth working together? And, and, and I don't mean necessarily for them, but for everyone else.
1: Not really. And and again, just following up what I just said, Randy was so professional and so was Liz, by the way, that, you know, everybody knew, you know, everybody, you know, especially in the beginning. I think it's fair to say people were probably cautious and a little concerned that the old Randy would, you know, reveal himself and, you know, kind of go over the top being overprotective and all of that. But again, because he was so professional and so was she. You know, she was married, I think, at the time. She had already she was either married or engaged to a guy down in Miami when I hired her. So that relationship romantically was clearly over, and Randy handled it professionally. So I think after you know Liz was in for two or three weeks, everybody realized that, you know the crazy Randy, you know, overprotective, jealous Randy of the past is he's not here anymore. And everybody just accepted her for her and and didn't think too much about it anymore.
0: Austin has a great question. What's the biggest lesson you learned, business or personal, from the Macho Man?
1: Mm, intensity is a very good thing. And sometimes people think you're, you, you, perhaps you're too intense or you're too passionate to the point of, of being almost obnoxious. Um, but that's not true. I don't think there's, there should ever be any limit on your intensity or your passion for something that you believe in. And that, to me, is probably embodies or personifies Randy Savage more than anything else I could say.
0: Here's a fun question, Uh, and this one comes to us from Jeremy. If Hogan was the highest paid, was Savage number two? I don't think so.
1: You know, I'd have to go back and, and try to dig up some information. I certainly don't recall everybody's salaries off the top of my freaking head. I know there's going to be listeners out there that are give me the I don't recall bullshit, but I would say Randy, Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, Bill Goldberg. I would say probably Bill Goldberg was
0: number two. No, no, I, we're talking about 95. So let me, oh, 95, let me let me circle back. 95,
1: 95. Um,
0: he's got to be it, right. I mean, it's got to be Hammer Sting.
1: No, he, no, Sting. Sting was at 750, uh, I believe where was flair
0: Flair's in the neighborhood right
1: Flair's in the neighborhood maybe just under so i think i think i think sting and and randy were probably neck and neck
0: yeah that makes sense um th- this is a question we got a lot why not have a macho man debut similar to the way hulk hogan was debuted there was a bigger reception for hulk hogan i mean a literal ticker tape parade this comes to us from tom why not a bigger one here for macho man
1: you know in in fairness uh there probably should have been it was probably a mistake not to we probably left a little bit of equity on the table or in the locker room i should say backstage by not doing that, um, especially debuting them in, in WCW, you know, in a small you know, center stage where there's maybe 350 people. And again, I watched that yesterday and we made it look as good as you could possibly make it look. Um, actually, it looked pretty great, <laughs> even by today's standards for such a small arena, particularly one configured the way that one was with such a steep seating uh, configuration and all that. But um, had we, you know, brought him out with a little bit more pomp and circumstance, no pun intended, with with deference to his music, I think we probably could have gotten a little bit more equity out of it, if not from the wrestling audience, because the wrestling audience didn't need it. But I think we probably could have done a better job, in fairness, uh, by positioning him even more so to advertisers and cable you know, outlets and, and pay-per-view companies and things like that. It's a good
0: point. Matt De La Rosa wants to know, Savage was known for his work outside of the ring with children and other charities. Did this continue during his time with WCW?
1: Yeah, he did. And Randy did a lot of things that we didn't, we didn't know about. Randy was a good dude, man. He wasn't just doing it for the PR. He was a good dude.
0: Andrew wants to know Lanny's deal. What's up with that? And of course, what Andrew's referencing is, Lanny Poffo famously had a deal for a long time with WCW. Was that addressed in 95 when he first came over or did Lanny's deal come later? Lanny's
1: deal came later. And, you know, I like, I like Lanny. I see Lanny four or five times a year when we do independent shows and comic cons and things like that. And I didn't really know Lanny. I knew of him, but I didn't know him before we brought him in. But going back to Randy's loyalty and commitment to family when we renegotiated Randy's—not renegotiated—but when we negotiated Randy's second contract, um, Randy wanted Lanny to come in, thinking about a buck fifty or a buck seventy-five. And I just couldn't do it. I couldn't justify it. And we we went back and forth, and it wasn't—you know—it didn't get ugly. There were no threats made. There was no that, but it it. It was Randy Savage intense, um, and I finally I just I said Randy I, I can't. There's just I can't do that. So, Randy said, "Okay, we've already agreed on my number. Reduce my number by X amount to cover Lanny's." So Randy paid Lanny's deal.
0: Wow, there you go, dropping some knowledge here today. Good question. Is- Another question here from Matt, he's bringing the noise here. Uh, was inducted into the WCW hall of fame this year. Why did the WCW hall of fame seem to die on the vine after this? He's referencing 1995. So you only did it a couple of years here and then it's gone. Uh, why did you pack it up?
1: Uh, I think one of the biggest challenges that we had, probably, probably the core reason. Was we didn't have, you know, we were. If you look at some of the last um, Hall of Fames that we did, we were digging pretty deep, trying to find people, you know, that would come in and be a part of that. Um, We were relying upon people that had no real. Direct relationship with WCW, and I know the WWE can do that. You know, they get away with the same thing now because they're WWE and they're bigger, and you know they bought up a lot of territory. So whether you know they they, they can induct somebody like Sting, even though Sting never really worked for WWE, um, they can induct them because now they own the WCW library and all that kind of shit. Well, we we couldn't get away with that. So after the first couple of years, we're sitting around the room going, "Okay, who are we going to induct to the Hall of Fame?" Well, the only people would, that would do it. Or made any kind of sense were people that nobody else knew, for the most part. So the the bench of you know, Hall of Famers that we could attract was was already getting pretty thin. I don't think there was anybody that was really behind the idea, myself included, um, enough to sustain it when it hit those types of challenges. So it was easier to just let it go away than it was to try to fix it.
0: Uh, talk to me a little bit about, um, and, and we get this a lot, Kicks, kick smart my heart. Can you clear up the rumor and innuendo that Flair wouldn't job to Macho Man and drop the title, which ultimately cost him his job as the booker? There's this conspiracy theory that Flair had a problem doing a job and it feels like he's lost. I mean, that's the way you become 16-time world champion. You lose it a lot. But allegedly, he didn't want to lose the the belt, and that's the reason he lost his job. That makes no sense to me. What say you?
1: None, none whatsoever. Anybody that's worked with Rick, even if you even if you've only been in the building while Rick was working, I'm talking about backstage. No, nope, nobody that was remotely close to Rick would, I, I don't think, would ever accuse him of not wanting to do a job. That's the most ridiculous. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Now there was a lot of other stuff going on. We've talked about this ad nauseum. Um, the pressure of being a top talent and the booker is ridiculous. For the strongest, most an insanely, intensely well-grounded person that you could imagine, it's, it's unbearable. And for a guy like Rick, who is a very emotional guy, he just loves to be loved. He doesn't like confrontations necessarily from a business perspective. Um, To be in that position was just more than he could bear. That had everything to do with him not being the booker anymore. not, Not doing a job.
0: Last one, then we'll get out of here. Hoboken Squat Cobbler, what a name that is, wants to know, was there ever any thought to having Randy get a win over Hogan Clean just once?
1: I'm sorry. I was choking on that handle. Could you please give me that one more time?
0: Lots of people want to know why Randy didn't get just one clean win over Hulk Hogan.
1: Oh, I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. Um, it's not like Hogan didn't do jobs. It,
0: I guess the point is, it wasn't a it wasn't a point of contention. You know, we'll talk about it later. But a lot of people say that Hogan pushed for warrior to come back because it was a way for him to get his win back. And maybe that, and I, I will talk about that later. Cause I know you want to rant on that, but we'll hold it for that warrior show. That sort of thinking didn't exist for macho man. Fair to say.
1: I'm not sure I understand
0: that. Well, yeah. <laughs> so, so Hogan, Hogan beat Savage at WrestleMania five. Right. And it was a huge deal. Uh, lots of, I mean, one of the biggest pay-per-views of all time, There's never really a clean win where Savage beats Hogan after that in a singles match without some sort of crazy shenanigans. Okay.
1: That's it. And and the question is why, why, why did that happen? You know, I don't know. I can't put myself in Hulk's head or, or certainly can't put myself in Randy's head at that time. I don't know that if it was.
0: My my point was, I don't know that, that Macho really cared. I don't think, I mean, I, here's if I had to guess and that's what I have to do. I mean,
1: we don't have any other choice, but to guess trying to answer a question like that. My guess is if there's a logical answer for it, it would be that they both recognized. That's the one thing about guys like Randy and, and, and I know this for a fact because I've, I used to hang with both of them, um, at the same time when they were getting along. Um, they both knew that they could probably extend their careers you know five or ten years just based on their ability to continue to tell stories. So if my, my guess is that I had if I had to, to they probably realize, okay, there, there's a big one here where Randy actually beats Hall clean and then there's a return because that's the way they thought. That's just the way their brains work. That's the way they grew up in the business. And that, that was to them. That was money in the bank. That would be my guess. My other guess would be oh, give a fuck. <laughs> it's just business. Wasn't necessary. It may be, it may have felt necessary to the audience, into the conspiracy theorists, theorists that are out there, especially the ones that want to, you know, portray Hulk as being really selfish and always protecting himself and, you know, bringing in warriors who didn't have to do a job for Randy. Whatever the fucking conspiracy is, yeah, that makes sense to people that live in that conspiracy world. But I, I would say my first guess, Randy didn't really care. My second guess, maybe they thought about it and talked about it and realized that that, that could be money in the bank down the road. I don't know.
0: We'll see you next week right here on 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff.
1: John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you fifteen to twenty? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys. The podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B L E A V on YouTube or wherever you listen.